0: Foo Bars
1: World Fuck Up with Joe Forrester and Hannah East. Hello, I'm Joe Forrester and welcome to Foo Bars World Fuck Up with myself and Hannah East. Now the world is a scary place right now. As Arsenal look like winning the league, Cristiano Ronaldo can only get booked on talk TV and millions of people are happily watching a man who was responsible for government health policy last year eat a camel's knob on national television. But never mind, because at least we have the spectacle of a World Cup to look forward to. Unless you're gay, of course or you care about the safety and welfare of migrant workers. Or in fact, you want a tournament that was fairly awarded in unsuspicious circumstances. Look, okay, it's a World Cup show with a twist, (laughs) because we'll be giving you an entertaining and unfiltered analysis of the World Cup, but also a hard-hitting and important conversation around the issues affecting Qatar 2022. So today we're going to be previewing the tournament, giving you a little cheat sheet of the best World Cup facts, so you can impress your mates down the pub. In addition, our big conversation this episode is all about the use and abuse of migrant workers in order to build the eight stadiums being used at the World Cup in Guitar. We'll be speaking to two experts about whether working conditions have improved for migrant workers or whether things are still just as bad. And also we'll be speaking to a former footballer turned agent about what it actually means to be a football agent. Right, it's not just me, it's gonna be Hannah East with you as well, every episode.
0: You're right, Hannah. Yeah, right. Gosh, Joe, you did that really professionally.
1: I was running out of breath at the end. It's like a kid know, when you I take a tell- big breath.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well done though, Joe.
1: Um, we, done. We're doing a we're doing a proper show for it the is. World Cup. Are you excited?
0: I am excited, but when we're the, some of the topics we're going to talk about, maybe they need to be talked about, but might mm. sound a little bit depressing. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is an exciting opportunity to educate people, give you facts, you can go to the pub and be like, guess what? I know everything about football. Ask me.
1: Do you know what? I think the idea of the show is, yes, we're all still going to watch the tournament. And of course, we're, we're going to, well, I'm going to be watching England and wanting England to, to win. But equally, this tournament is marred in controversy. So let's talk about it. Let's not do what all the big corporate sponsors are doing, what yeah. FIFA want you to do, what some of the broadcasters might be doing. Let's talk about these topics, but don't worry because there are still going to be plenty of knob jokes.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <Sorry>. obviously. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and not in the serious listen.
1: sections, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're still we're still going to kind of be doing the silly stuff as well, yeah, as much we as we can. Dudes.
0: We are, um, are you excited. Are you excited for the
1: World Cup, Joe? Do you know what? Right, I'm. <laughs> yes but I don't have like that kind of sick in my tummy feeling that you get before a tournament. Cause I think what normally happens is the season ends, you get FA Cup yeah. final, playoff finals, Champions League final, and then you go, oh, it's the World Cup in two weeks. Like, I don't know what to After do with your myself. After 18
0: to 30s in Magaluf, which neither of us can go on, by the way. Back in the day, I'm talking, not now.
1: If we were on the 18 to 30s holiday, Hannah, we would be there as the coach driver. <laughs> yeah, we or, would. or like managing the reps.
0: <laughs> the chaperone <laughs> sweeping up the chunder. That would be us. Oh, awful.
1: No, 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 no. People who, who watch our stuff will know. Like you would be able to see from how... Um, rotund I'm looking that I've had <laughs> for quite a big week on the lagers.
0: Let's call it bloated.
1: Yeah, it is a little bit, isn't it? Because, <laughs> I mean, there, there is an extra chin where there wasn't one before. And the kind of fat is rising up my face to, to make my eyes close. Um, but, but Hannah, you obviously have had an up and down season with Manchester United. Yeah. And now it's time for a World Cup. Yeah. What are your kind of, what's your vibe during a World Cup? What's your excitement level? What's your tradition? How do you watch the games?
0: Well going off the back of some of the things we are going to discuss today there's you know a lot of negativity around it but the the world cup's going to happen in Qatar it's going to start regardless of what we say so it's like right let's talk about what has happened up to this point but also let's enjoy the tournament because we're going to see the world's best footballers it's a really exciting opportunity I've got two young kids that are four and six we've got our chart on the wall I'm like really excited to educate them Um, so when they get older we can socialise and go to football games instead of having to do stuff that they might have been interested in should I have (laughs) not have reared them to watching football all the time Um, but it's really exciting like there's a nice vibe around it. it's just a weird time of year um, Mm. to have it because it's going to affect our a celebrity on an evening you know controversial (laughs) um but I'm excited for it it's gonna be good
1: (laughs) so that's it the (laughs) hard-hitting issues Um, we're all interested in how much of a chance England actually have at this year's tournament so with us now is Simon Gleave Uh, Simon is the head of sports analysis at Grace Note so they are the number geniuses who crunch all of the numbers and work out kind of the exact likelihood of things happening in sport Um, Simon hello thank you very much for joining us Hello, Joe. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. We're getting tentatively excited about the World Cup. The first thing I have to ask, right, is can England actually win the blooming thing? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, they can all anybody can win. <laughs> that's a, that's a that's a fact. <laughs> anything can happen. I mean, we saw last time Croatia reaching the final. I think mm. nobody really expected England to get as far as they did uh, the last World Cup either. So, really anything can happen when it comes to a World Cup. But it's not necessarily about can they win? It's more about are they one of the favorites to win? And in that case, I'd probably say no, they're not
0: yeah, oh, I, Simon. Simon, I'm we
1: looked negative. at some of your, your charts earlier and it it was a little bit depressing. Yeah, tell us statistically
2: what are England's chances. <laughs> okay, so um, so I think it's good to just step through the, the different things that uh, that can happen. So first of all, we do expect England to reach the next round. So if they're expected to get through the group phase. Um, we have them as the favourites to win Group B with a 64% chance of getting through to the... This, the, the knockout uh, rounds. Um, then we have uh, a 34% chance of reaching the quarterfinals, um, a 16% chance of reaching the semifinals, uh, roughly 8% chance of reaching the final, and a 3% chance of winning. Oh, um, right. However, at this point, <laughs> <laughs> at this point before it starts, um, you know, we uh, th- there's not many teams that have a very high chance of winning because uh, there are so many good teams at the World Cup. So uh, the chance... And who are
0: those teams, Simon, you team. think? Who do you think is going to be the top three?
2: So um, so the team that we have, that we give the most chance to, which is only 20% still, is Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, they're ranked number one on our world ranking. And uh, if we play the simulations of the World Cup through in our system, then uh, then they come out as winners well 20% of the time. And they're followed by Argentina, 16% chance of winning. And those two are the big favourites. Third, we have, um, let's just have a look at my sheet. We have the Netherlands and we have Belgium roughly, no, sorry, the Netherlands and uh, and Spain roughly e- equal to each other. But the Netherlands are a also very one, close.
1: because they've obviously not had much of a presence at recent international tournaments. And it's been something of a fallow period for them. Um, I know you're based in the Netherlands, Simon. Has that got anything
2: to, to do with... Absolutely not, no. no. <laughs> it has nothing to do with me where I live, no. <laughs> no, I mean, the Dutch performances uh, recently have been really, really good. So, uh, I mean, they slaughtered Belgium in the Nations League away from home. Belgium's obviously one of the, the top sides. They've done, they've done very well in the Nations League. The Netherlands, they've reached the, final, the finals of that competition, which uh, take place next year by winning their Nations League group. Um, and, you know, the, the system that we have assumes that England were playing to their, uh, their maximum ability during those Nations League uh, matches because obviously yeah, England didn't do so well in those and had some very bad results, which is why we don't rate them as highly as we would have done, let's say, a year ago. Well,
1: I heard something depressing the other day that in England's group, which is um, Iran, Wales and the USA, the only team in that entire group to win a match in the last international break was Iran. So no one is coming into it that hot.
2: In Ruby. No, that's true. That's true. Um, I think Iran didn't. I think Iran beat Uruguay during the uh, last international break. And I mean, yep. this is that's a, we could just touch on Iran. I mean, Iran probably most people don't know much about Iran, but we have Iran going getting through that group with England, um, or as you know, the second most likely to get through. I guess it's a fifty-fifty thing between them and the US by uh, right. in, in our in our calculations. But Iran um, are probably better than people realize. Mm. Uh, We rank them in the top 20 in the world. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens on that first match. And to be honest with you, you know, I'm not too keen on playing Iran in that first match, I think. It would be better if they already if we played somebody else first rather than them. I'm yeah. also not particularly keen on playing Wales last. <laughs> no, I don't
0: think any, they're a bit of a bogey team for us, aren't they? <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, it could be tricky. So, uh, so we'll see.
1: It's quite a delicate group in terms of not just national rivalries but also international relations. So it's a bit, <laughs> it's a bit of a dicey one, Group B, to be honest. Um, but are there any particular players that that you think we should maybe be watching out for in this tournament?
2: Um, yeah, I think there's some interesting players for sure. Uh, we've got a yeah, Nielsen. We have something which measures how players have uh, grown their social media following on Instagram. Okay. In this case, um, over oh, the last it's so
0: 2022.
2: So anyway, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> so that sort of shows. Really like <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right that sort of shows you know who's who are the sort of um yeah the viral players i suppose you could call them this season <laughs> the trending players this season i mean you'll know you'll know them because they play in england the the top two in that so we have uh so that's anthony and Lisandro martinez both at manchester united obviously one's playing mm. one's in the brazilian squad one's in the argentinian squad you know they're the they're the big trending players um on our uh on our influence scope uh, so far this season so that's just going back to the beginning of the season so certainly looking out for 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 them I think um yeah I mean those would be sort of my my tips for you know maybe seeing something interesting Um, I'm
1: gonna go follow them right now yeah (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) and Simon what do you make of Gareth Southgate's squad are you excited by it
2: I think it's more or less what you expect. I mean... Um,
0: I mean, there was a lot of hesitation. <laughs> but now that now fever
2: so. have, <laughs> now, now have increased these squads to 26, you know, yeah. you don't really end up with shock exclusions, I think. Um, it's a little bit of a shame some of the injuries that we've got. I would have liked to have seen uh, Rhys James, for example, mm. playing. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it is what it is. There's some exciting players in there. Let's face it. <laughs> let's
1: funny, see what it? they can do. When you see that squad, if you start with the forwards, you're kind of like, yeah. Oh, hello. Here we go. And you get to midfielders. Oh, okay. It's pretty good to the defenders. Oh God, no. It's very yeah. It's it's a mixed bag. And Hannah's a Manchester United fan, so Harry Maguire is. It's taken up enough airtime, I think, for everybody this season. No, but season. I'm going to
0: ask Simon. Let me ask Simon, what do you think to Harry Maguire? Should, oh, should Gareth yeah. Southgate put his trust in him or should he just keep him there for an emergency? <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> that's a loaded question. I can't win on that. Um, I think uh,
3: <laughs>
2: I, I think the problem is that England have a... Uh, England's defence, as you've said, Joe, is not particularly strong. Whoever you put in there... Um, and Harry Maguire, is, uh, Harry Maguire probably takes a bit too much stick, really. Yeah. He's not uh, quite as bad, as people say. So uh, I'm, I'm happy with it. Let's see. When, 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 he, when he heads a goal in to win a match as, as well, you know, at the other end from a corner, exactly. then he won't be complaining.
1: Well, not to worry as well, because Gareth Southgate's done him a real favour by putting Eric Dyer in there as well. Who's um, really really specialised in the last couple of months in uh, in giving the ball away to opposition attackers just to make things more interesting for Spurs <laughs> fans? Um, Simon, are there any underdogs that we should be looking out for? Any any teams that might surprise us at this year's tournament?
2: Well, I have mentioned Iran already, so they're they're, they're certainly one I think um, who are interesting and worth taking worth keeping an eye on. Um, Ecuador in the uh, in the Dutch group are also uh, we've also got them qualifying as second um, behind the Netherlands. But, uh, you know, that group's also interesting from the point of view of what Qatar are going to be like. It's, in terms of the uh, in terms of the matches they've played, they're, they're particularly impressive, but they are at home. So we, we have given them a home advantage, as we always do. Um, we still have them coming third in that group. But, uh, you know, let's see. I don't, again, I think it's a team that no one really knows uh, anything much about. Um, Uruguay. Uruguay's always interesting. Mm. I think they're often forgotten. About Uruguay, I mean, it's uh, what is it now? Twenty ten, they reached the semi-finals. They're always an interesting team. Um, they're again, they're probably a much stronger team than people realize. So I think uh, we, we've got them in the top ten in the world, and I think they just get forgotten about. So yeah, I'd say those three are probably the uh, the interesting ones. Um, and I think you know the, the, the Netherlands. I think uh, in terms of the European teams, I think the Netherlands uh, with the form that they've had. And the fact that uh, this squad that the Dutch have now is probably better than the one they had in 2014 mm. when they reached the semi-finals with Vachal uh, with as uh, as manager and he's obviously back again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could be a, a dark horse to win, I guess.
1: Well, it's been, it's been lovely to hear nobody mention France or Germany. So that has made me <laughs> tentatively happy as an England fan. Um, now, Simon, I know what your analysis tells us. And this is this is maths, OK? This stuff is pretty infallible in terms of probabilities. But... What does your what does your heart say? Just before I let you go, what is what does your heart say? The winner of the
2: tournament will be this year. Um, I quite like Argentina or <laughs> Holland. Yeah, <laughs> so I know they're up there. One. I know they're up there, but uh, you know, I mean, I, and I also have a bit of a. I mean, I obviously, live here, but uh, the first World Cup I ever watched was nineteen seventy four, and so obviously, I've, I've always had a weakness for the Dutch team. Um, yeah. back in the seventies, England didn't make it, so the first two World Cups I ever I watched as a kid. Were Holland in the final both times and losing both times. So, uh, so yeah, I think uh, I'd like to see the Dutch win, but Argentina are probably my favourites.
1: Well, if they play like that that team in nineteen seventy four, then I, I don't mind them. Getting all the way to the final, I've got to
2: say. <laughs> Not sure there's much chance of that these days, but
1: uh, you yeah, <laughs> I, I suppose. Um, Simon, thank you very much for chatting it's, you, been it's been a real pleasure. Being so, so interesting. Um, that's Simon Gleave there uh, from Grace Note. He's the head of sports analysis there, right? We are going to now go through some facts to impress your mates at the World Cup. Because, yeah. Hannah, being a football fan yeah. is all about one chip, It's Always. all about showing you no more and laughing in the face of people you've known for 20 years.
0: But it's when you pretend in your own head that you are actually a football manager and you know everything. And when you tell a fact to somebody, you're like, No, that's not right. I read it in the Daily Mail two (laughs) weeks ago. It's obviously right when you've had two pints. And you're like, honestly, listen to me. I know it. Right. But we are now going to talk
1: facts about the World Cup. And we're going to bring in Alex Hilton, who's a comedian, presenter, a massive, massive football fan as well. Now, Hannah, I know, obviously, you've worked with Alex before. Um, He's coming in right now to just give us a few facts about the World Cup. Um, And Hannah, this is going to really arm us. To look like we're smart down the pub, or you can you can make your four-year-old and your six-year-old embarrassed with how much you know about the World <laughs> Cup this year. You're right, Alex. So,
0: so proud. I you're
1: am. What? I
4: can yeah. just about hear you.
0: Amazing. Well, I, I don't
4: know if I want to delay or not, so I apologize on the stream. Uh, but thank you for having me. You really put the pressure on right there at the top by saying that Alex is going to blow our minds. Um, <laughs> but I like expectations low, so please yeah, just reduce those down a little bit.
0: Alex, I just wanted to talk first because you're a massive City fan, aren't you?
4: I am, yeah. You're a massive United fan.
0: I am, yeah. I, I just wanted to put that out there in Joseph Spurs fan. I know this is not really relevant to this uh, <laughs> World Cup chat, but... <laughs> it's just, you know, just just saying, just pointing it out. You're a City fan. Right, carry on.
4: <laughs> not, not not, not specifically a World Cup fact, um, uh, but it's accurate. It must be hard as a United fan because this World Cup you'll be a neutral because there's barely any United players going. All, oh,
0: hey. here we go, here we go. Hey. Here comes in the banter. Alex is in here the room. and he's. Did you just stick your middle finger up at me there, Alex? Or were you I waving think you did at me? the gun me? Sign. Absolutely not. Sorry,
4: oh, they, the were, sign. Um, <laughs> they were arrow fingers. They were arrow fingers.
0: Okay, I'll let you off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> So
1: do, you to, do you want to let Alex tell us his World, his world <laughs> Cup yeah. facts, Hannah? Are you going to Hannah East's World Cup facts? Alex is a City fan. Brilliant. <laughs>
4: <laughs> right, so, I've genuinely researched this one myself <laughs> over the last hour. Um, But you are statistically more likely to be uh, in a World Cup squad if you're a Virgo. Uh, There are more Virgos named in the England squad than any other star sign. Gareth Southgate is a Virgo. And very interestingly, uh, Virgos are supposed to match best with Pisces and Capricorn, of which there are four Pisces and four Capricorns in the England squad. Uh, Virgos match worst uh, with Leo and Aquarius, and that will make sense because Gareth Southgate has only known one Aquarius in the squad, Conor Gallagher, and one Leo, which does happen to be Harry Kane.
1: Oh, Leo oh, wow. the lion. Can I just say as well, I thought you were going to say you're m- more statistically likely to be in an England squad if you're a virgin, <laughs> but this yeah. that is not true. Some of the stuff I've seen on Instagram... <laughs> <laughs> say what you like about these lads
0: <laughs> they are not frigid <laughs> we really know not. that <laughs> oh alex have you got any more stats for us that was
4: brilliant uh yeah uh will become the squads uh with the lowest population to ever play at a world cup uh, the next lowest uh, was iceland's uh, and one in a thousand icelandic men in their 20s have played at a world cup
1: Wow, that's pretty good. I remember. So I live in Wandsworth in South London. I remember when they knocked when Iceland knocked England out the Euros in twenty sixteen. There was a stat doing the rounds that um, we were knocked out by a country that has a smaller population than Wandsworth. So another proud moment for the Three Lions there.
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds about right. Um, fascinatingly enough, uh, in our current World Cup group, Iran, Wales, and the United States, England have never played uh iran in any sort of competitive fixture. uh we've only played the united states twice in which they've beaten us once and they've drawn with us once uh, and wales we have played 103 times and have an absolute mixed bag of results against them
1: i have a slightly sexy or steamy fact about the world cup did you know that the world cup winning country sees a baby boom nine months after the world cup so, oh God, better
0: not look at my husband then.
1: <laughs> if, if England win the World Cup, Andy East will be chasing you around that house <laughs> with his England shirt on and his little wife runs.
0: Oh, I mean, his little what?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alex, sorry, mate, uh, have you got any more?
4: I've got more. Uh, lots of people have been talking about boycotting uh, the Qatar World Cup. Um, the last team that properly boycotted the World Cup was India. India only qualified for the World Cup once and they qualified in 1950 and then decided to boycott the World Cup. Do you know why India boycotted the World Cup?
0: Is this because of the shoes?
4: Yes. Yes, correct. Uh, they weren't allowed to play barefoot. In 1950, the Indian National Football League was played barefoot and they were upset that FIFA insisted they would have to wear boots if they were to play in an international tournament. So they tried to boycott the whole tournament in Brazil that year.
1: That's weird, isn't it? Because FIFA, FIFA are kind of happy for migrant workers to live in labour camps, but they won't let the Indian team play with no shoes. That's a weird that's a weird moral system that they've got going on. But hey-ho, that's football.
4: Well, is that it? Is it the PPE policy that FIFA have got? Is obviously in the 1950s, they were right on point. You've got to have the right uniform. You've got to play in boots, hard hats. There's got to be a safety supervisor at the 1950 World Cup. And they've done away with that now. We live in a modern world. It's uh, fascinating to see.
1: Uh, look, nice one, Alex. Um, it'd be great to get you on again. We'd love to chat to you again. Thank you very much for your facts as well. And I think we've all learned one important thing about the World Cup, and that's that Alex is a City fan. So <laughs> thank you very much for that, Hannah. Um, nice one. Do make sure Thanks, you, um, Alex. you follow Alex on Twitter and Instagram and stuff. Brilliant uh, comedian, presenter, massive football fan as well. Be sure to get Alex on again. Right, Hannah, very quickly, here's a really important thing that all football fans, all England fans need to know. One of the most difficult things, of course, is planning your pub times around a major tournament. Yeah. Because you know that you need to be off work, afternoon probably the morning after as well but there's different permutations of where and when england might play depending on when they finish in the group yes so i have worked it out for you so basically if you're listening to this or watching this you're absolutely golden as long as your boss doesn't also listen to the show in which case you're fucked (laughs) (laughs) because they're going to know exactly what's happening. So England's first game, 21st of November, one o'clock on the BBC, England are playing Iran. On that Friday, the 25th, 7 p.m. on ITV, England-USA, Tuesday, the 29th of November, 7 p.m. on the BBC, playing Wales. That's all fine. Okay, that's where you can see the first three games. Now, here's where things get difficult. So when you make your pub bookings, most pubs will let you cancel kind of with 48 hours notice about losing your deposit. So my advice is book every possible England game en route to the final and just cancel as appropriate. So it was quite, it was quite fun during the Euros because I found myself cancelling several bookings. We got all the way. Normally, yeah, it's just...
0: you, you were booking like three or four pubs at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you were like not only stressing about getting there to watch the game and who's going to win, you were stressing about which pub you needed to cancel and going through all your emails. And when you like make 40 bookings or so, you were well, so, stressing. So, so, when you forget...
1: Uh, who you And some of your friends are like, when you've booked three separate pubs, right, or whatever, depending on where England might finish, and people are going, oh, I don't like that pub. It's at the level of ingratitude. It's outrageous. Because um, also they get booked up very quickly, don't they, these pubs? So you want to be able to get in. So if England finish top of Group B, it's likely they'll end up playing Ecuador or Senegal. That will be on Sunday, the 4th of December at 7 p.m. The quarterfinal, potentially France or, France or Argentina, will be on Saturday the 10th at 7 p.m. The semi final, which would likely be Belgium, Germany, Portugal, or Spain, will be on Wednesday the 14th at 7 pm. One thing I will say about this segment pause it, write it down, make your bookings appropriately. Okay. This, this I feel <laughs> is the most helpful thing. That you're gonna Never get from mind
0: us. the facts that we've just given you about star signs and stuff. Exactly. This, this is what you're here for.
1: This is it. And if England finished second in Group B, which Alex, uh, not Alex, sorry, which Simon told us is unlikely, but should they finish second in Group B, the round of 16 would likely be the Netherlands, and that would be Saturday the 3rd at 3pm. The quarterfinal, probably Argentina or Denmark, would be Friday the 9th at 7 the semi-final, potentially Spain, Canada or Croatia, Tuesday the 13th at 7. Should we end up in the third place playoff, which no one cares about. But that's Saturday the 17th at 3. But the World Cup final is Sunday the 18th at 3 p.m.
0: And breathe. And then you start your Christmas shopping.
1: Okay, right. Um, Something we're going to do every single episode is the big conversation. And this time, we're going to be talking about migrant workers. Now, you'll have heard a lot about this, but essentially this is an in-depth, uncensored conversation around some of the controversies facing this year's World Cup. According to a Guardian article in 2021, there's been 6,500 deaths of migrant workers. There's issues around passports being withheld, wages not being what people were promised, having to pay exorbitant recruitment fees that the migrant workers then can't pay off having to live in what's been called camps, something called the industrial area in Qatar, working in unsafe conditions. I mean, the whole thing has been a very, very worrying fiasco. And this episode, we're going to be focusing on issues surrounding the stadiums that have been built for the Qatar World Cup and some of the issues around this. Um, So just to give you a bit of context, Qatar has a population of under 3 million Meaning that much of Qatar's workforce of migrant workers, they come from places like India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, uh, West Africa as well. And after Qatar, Qatar were announced as the hosts of the World Cup, they had to build seven stadiums and renovate an eighth in record time in order to get them completed. In time for the tournament. Um, Firstly, let's bring in uh, Max Tunyon, head of the International Labour Organisation project office for the state of Qatar. Um, Max, thank you very much for joining us. There's a whole raft of issues around the World Cup and a huge amount of it centres around these migrant workers, their rights, their safety. Are you able to just explain to, to us and the listeners a little bit about the kafala system that Qatar used to use and what that meant for workers?
3: Yes, certainly. So the the kafala system or the sponsorship system is a means which oversees a worker's entry into the country, their stay in the country, their job, even their exit from the country. Previously, the worker was tied to one employer and dependent on their employer for all of that. And when you have these multiple dependencies, it makes the worker vulnerable to the potential for exploitation. Uh, It doesn't mean that everybody in in the kafala system was being exploited, Mm -hmm. but it enabled a system in which workers could be exploited. And so that's why it was very important to dismantle the most problematic elements of kafala. We don't say abolish because there are still parts of the kafala that still exist. Uh, You still need an employer or a sponsor in order to enter the country and that employer is responsible for the renewal of your work permit, for example. But that's not so different from what exists in in many parts of, of Europe and North America. But when we talk about dismantling the most problematic elements of the kafala system, we're talking about the ability for workers to leave the country without permission from their employers, which has been done. And most importantly, the ability for workers to change jobs without permission from their employers.
1: Um, Let's bring in Sasha Deshmukh as well, CEO of Amnesty International, um, because there is a huge human rights issue here as well that that needs to be addressed. Um, Sasha, thank you very much for for joining us. Um, Do you think that the World Cup exposed what was already a fundamentally problematic system or do you think that it exacerbated it
5: i think the world cup has uh, shone a light on uh, a situation which has been rife with human rights abuses it it was in 2013 uh, that amnesty international published a major report on workers rights Uh, In Qatar, Um, while we may have seen a few small amendments to those rights and protections over the years leading up to the World Cup taking place, actually those have only affected about 2% of workers in Qatar. So I think it's true that the World Cup really looks like it's going to be defined by those abuses. um, And it's shone a light on the failure of FIFA to demand. commitments around human rights at the time of the World Cup being awarded, what it hasn't done is create the situation, but it has shone a light on a situation that has existed for a long time.
0: Yeah, and when we look at it's 2022. How on earth, for the, the richest country in the world, how on earth has, has these conditions and and this whole this whole situation been able to happen?
3: Can I, can I uh, jump in here? I think oh. it's really important to to recognize the reforms that have been done. Mm. For sure, there are still gaps in implementation, but I think it's not accurate to say that these reforms have only benefited uh, a small proportion of the workforce or 2% of the workforce. When we look at the Kafala reforms in two years, 350,000 workers have changed jobs. Uh, With the introduction of a minimum wage, 280,000 workers saw their wages increase to a minimum threshold. Yes, people will argue that it's low. But it's, it's a significant improvement from, from what it's before, and it's not a fixed minimum wage. It will evolve over time. So 13% of the workforce benefited from those reforms. When we think about other changes, you know, the first time we had elected migrant worker representatives in the region, these are substantial. I'm not suggesting that the job is complete, that the work is done. Mm. We talk to workers on a daily basis. We receive complaints from workers on a daily basis in our office in Doha. We know where the gaps in implementation are we don't see the World Cup as the finishing line. You know, we will continue to work in the state of Qatar with the government, with workers and employers uh, to make sure that all workers uh, can benefit from these changes. I
5: think where I would disagree is that while I think um, I agree that the World Cup is far from the finishing line, I'm afraid I do disagree that the changes so far have been substantial. I mean, let me just give one example uh, a number of healthcare experts have told Amnesty International that a healthcare system, in a healthcare system, it should be possible to identify the cause of a worker death in all but around one percent of cases. But our review of data from major labour sending countries to Qatar found that the rate of unexplained migrant worker deaths in Qatar is closer to seventy percent. So, you know, and then looking into some of those cases, again, just to try and put some humanity to what otherwise can seem statistical. You know, I've looked into a number of cases where we're talking about people in their 30s, all of whom had passed mandatory health screening prior to uh, securing work. Um, And we're talking about deaths after days of working in 40 degrees Celsius conditions, in some cases where those workers have complained about those conditions or complain about the lack of air conditioning, for example, if they were driving lorries. So I really do not think it's correct to say that we have seen substantial improvements. I do agree that we do not want the World Cup to be a finishing line because it simply can't be. It's, it won't be a finishing line of anything other than, I think, unfortunately, an exposure of a tournament that didn't demand the human rights conditions that it should have done at the time of its awarding.
1: And Sasha, here, actually, one of the interesting points about the um, the cause of death is essentially that the families of these workers are then kind of unable to receive any kind, or it's hard for them to receive any kind of recompense or compensation if it's not deemed to be a work-related death. So the, having these statistics kind of skewed like that means that their families back home, Aren't maybe even being compensated when, when the worst has happened. Um, Max, what what is going to be done, kind of, moving forward? Do you think we're saying that the World Cup isn't the finishing line? What's what's the next step?
3: Well, there's, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done around making sure that all workers can benefit from the Kafala reforms. Looking at the issue of wage protection, for example, is still the number one cause of, of complaint from workers. The government has established a fund to to pay out workers their, their wages and benefits when they get a court ruling in their favor. That's paid out $320 million in just a few years. So it really gives you an indication of the scale of the problem, but also the fact that, you know, the government isn't not doing anything to to, to make sure that workers can receive their benefits. And then one of the other priorities, which is often not talked about, is the issue of domestic workers' rights. Uh, There is legislation in place protecting domestic workers. Uh, We've worked on a model employment contract uh, that provides additional protections. But still, when it comes to uh, working time for domestic workers and the the right for them to take at least one day off per week, this is where we see shortcomings in implementation.
1: Sasha, can I ask you, how culpable do you think FIFA are in, in all of this? Because they created this situation where, obviously, these stadiums had to be built there's a very short amount of time in which you were to, to build them. It's a country of a very small population, so you're going to need to use workers from, from elsewhere. And I understand, obviously, there's Amnesty want FIFA to be compensating workers' families. And I think they've paid out something, or have agreed to pay out something like £450 million um, pounds so far, but it's kind of not close to the, the £6 billion that they're going that FIFA are going to make themselves from the tournament. Um, how much do you hold FIFA responsible for, for what's going on?
5: Well, FIFA certainly could have um, demanded human rights commitments as part of the awarding of this tournament and didn't do so. Um, So certainly, I think from the off, this tournament on the part of FIFA, actually, I would say on the part of other footballing authorities, um, has not been taking its responsibilities in relation to human rights nearly as seriously as it would need to do just in relation to that point that you raised around compensation Mm. um it's not correct to say that there have been those those commitments amnesty international and others have talked about the need for there to be Mm. uh, proper enforcement and loopholes closed around compensation and you're absolutely right that we have talked about um how of course you know prevention is better than compensation but we are where we are so there should be a a comprehensive compensation scheme Mm. Um, and you're right, I think, in terms of the kind of numbers that you're talking about. Well, we're talking about you know, in the order of $440 um, million or so, which, again, just to sort of highlight a comparator, that's around the same as, um, as the uh, amount of money that's um, set aside in relation to the kind of prizes and success from the tournament and is, is a drop in the ocean compared to the kind of overall $6 billion that we're talking about in relation to this tournament. So I think from the off, the tournament was set up actively not cited around human rights. And again, let's be clear, you know, I don't think that what's happened has changed that since, even though I think we've seen some marginal points, including when it comes to footballing authorities here in the UK, who I don't think have been nearly clear enough about their positions in, in relation to human rights in this tournament.
3: Let me let me again. Oops. Sorry, just to, to the issue of marginal or negligible change. I want to come back to this and say that these are significant reforms. As I've said, hundreds of thousands of workers have benefited. We asked we, we commissioned a survey of over a thousand low wage workers. We asked various questions around the reforms, focused on wages, but working time and other things. And as part of that survey, eighty-six percent of respondents felt that the reforms had had a positive impact on their life. Now, it doesn't mean that you know everything's perfect. We know it. We, we we hear it on a daily basis. But I think there's a need to recognize progress as well. I think there's a need to recognize you know that these are deeply entrenched challenges, problems. Uh, these pra- business practices uh, have been you know in place for decades. Mm. Um, changing mindsets, building new institutions takes time. Um, and, you know, we rarely see change happening at this pace. So I fully agree, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done, but two things can be true. We can say that there's progress and that uh, more needs to be done.
0: And there's no hiding from this situation now either because the, the spotlight is on Qatar for the next month um, and any changes that are, that need to be made hopefully will be fast tracked um, for future generations because of what we've seen and, and what we're discussing now and, and what people are having to go through, which they shouldn't be going through. And, you know, like you say, changes have happened, but I think it's still quite far off where things should be.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think everybody recognizes that that more needs to be done. Um, we've definitely got a full agenda for next year. The the governor of Qatar has asked us to open up a permanent office in the country, which demonstrates their commitment to to these reforms over the long term. It's not just the ILO; we're working with the international trade unions at the strategic level in terms of our you know what needs to be done at the at the higher level in terms of these reforms. But they also have a presence on the ground in Qatar. Five staff of the global trade unions or in Qatar, working with communities in different sectors, organising, bringing workers together uh, across different sectors, including domestic work. This was unthinkable a few years ago. You know, this so you, just couldn't happen. And it's unthinkable in many other countries in the region. It, it can't happen.
0: So you feel so, that, as this has been highlighted, you, you believe that the Qatar government will continue to, to implement these changes in the future because of the, how it's been highlighted throughout the, the World Cup build-up?
3: Look, I mean, I think for sure there's a recognition that the World Cup has accelerated these changes. You know, as I said, we work around the the world on complex, deep-rooted issues, and rarely do you see things happening at this pace. But it's very much aligned with the national strategy of the country as well. And not only that, the country, other countries in the region have similar strategies with similar goals about developing more competitive economies and more diversified economies and more skills-based economies. And these labor reforms contribute to that.
1: Sasha, do you think there's an element of, are you hoping that that anything good is going to come from this? I'm kind of looking myself and I kind of tentatively kind of have this feeling with when it comes to LGBT rights, for example, with Harry Kane wearing the rainbow armband and the England players flying in on an airplane with kind of rainbow detailing on it and that sort of thing. I thought, hey, well, maybe it's there's interesting conversations that are going to be had because of this World Cup that perhaps might not have been had in the future uh, or had it not been for the tournament, do you think kind of when it comes to the human rights issues and the the issues surrounding migrant workers that there could be any positives to
5: take from the tournament happening? Very few being realistic. I think that, I mean, clearly I think when the World Cup was awarded um, and it it was taken up, um, the intention, I am sure, was that this would be nothing other than a glamorous sports washing event, and that human rights would be not seen in the slightest. I mean, we've seen that not just in relation to this World Cup, but in relation to a number of authoritarian governments with terrible human rights records, hoping that that's exactly what sports will allow them to do. Um, taking the specific example of what you've what you've talked about, mm. you know, I think that while some of the issues raised over the last few weeks have talked about the safety of fans who are attending the Games, and obviously that's important. Um, you know, that's next to nothing compared to frankly, the ongoing legal situation, uh, you know, penalties of up to five years for um, consensual same-sex relations in, in Qatar. And so I don't think we should kid ourselves that Harry Kane's armband or a plane that happens to have some colours have any real fundamental impact on that. I am glad that that thanks not, I should say, to the efforts of FIFA, not to the efforts of footballing authorities, yes to the efforts of some journalists and certainly to the efforts of some brave human rights defenders, you know, including number in Qatar where the situation is very, very difficult to speak about human rights. The tournament hasn't been allowed to be used perhaps as it was intended. But let's not kid ourselves to say that somehow that means that this is a great thing, that a major sports washing event is is taking place. Even thinking about one of the examples raised just by you know one of my um, fellow people speaking here just, just now. Yes, there may be five people who are involved um, looking at, at certain elements of labour reforms, as I was highlighted, but we're still talking about there being no right for migrant workers to join a trade union. You know, we're talking about the situation that I described in relation to the safety of those workers. So again, Let's not kid ourselves that we should be patting ourselves on the back because this has somehow driven progress. I think that some brave people have tried to ensure that this can't be 100% a sports-washing event. I'm glad of that. But, But I really think that we need to look hard. I look at, you know, some of those people are ambassadors. I am very disappointed in David Beckham. I think there's a gap between a lot of his public positioning and then the reality of what he's doing and the gap that he hasn't still spoken out in the way that he still could. I hope he does in the next few days because I'm not perhaps holding my breath. Mm. So I don't think that we should be um, taking false comfort from from gestures that are happening or their impact uh, when, re- when the reality is it, 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 it unfortunately is still and has been used as a major attempt to sports wash reputation of a of a country.
0: So and, do you think then Sasha that um for throughout the tournament that uh, when people do go to Qatar you know if people are allowed to drink alcohol uh, have public display of affection in public um that kind of thing that's going to be okay for the the period of the the tournament and then after that do you think everything's just going to go back to as it was and potentially no more changes are going to happen?
5: I think that's that is certainly the major risk or likelihood, yes. Um, and so, I, you know, there is certainly nothing that gives me confidence that, for example, you know, there's going to be any fundamental change um, to to, uh, to to some of these oppressive laws that we are seeing. And again, I think, you know, of course, I think that the safety of people who are attending the tournament as fans is important. Absolutely, I think that the Foreign Secretary James Pevely was wrong to suggest that people should somehow compromise on their own identity when they're there um, as a fan. So absolutely, I think both of those things. But I also don't think that we should kid ourselves that what's happening during the period of the tournament is somehow going to fundamentally change the situation for residents or indeed visitors after those few weeks, for example, when it comes to LGBTI rights.
1: Um, And Max, just, just finally, do you think that, I mean, I suppose, what do you want to see the legacy of this tournament be? And I mean, do you think perhaps one of those things could be the, the abolishment of the kafala system altogether?
3: Well, I think if if these reforms are fully implemented in due course, this will be the first time that a, a sporting event, a mega sporting event, has a positive human rights legacy uh, when we talk about labour rights. Um, I think yes there's still a lot of work to be done on, on Kafala but it's not the only area in which there's, there's more work to mm-hmm. be done. The issue of, of trade unions was was raised raised by Sasha. I think it's uh, you know it's a fundamental principle at right at work but it's also important to you know to note that while there is no independent trade unions in Qatar for the first time in the region there are elected migrant worker representatives beginning at the enterprise level and now we're looking at, gradually moving these from the enterprise level to the sectoral level, to eventually having national platforms for social dialogue. This is a major issue in a, in a region where we don't see in independent trade unions gradually building up workers' voice and workers' representation. And it should be done in, you know, through evolution, not revolution. You know, if this is indeed going to be sustainable in the long term, it has to be something that is adapted to the context of, uh, of, of, a, of a country. It can't be something that's transplanted from another country. So this is a strategy that mm. I've not come up with. It's something that's been negotiated with the ITUC, the International Trade Union Confederation, and the Global Union Federations. This is the approach that was adopted uh, with the government of Qatar to gradually build up workers' voice and representation to make sure that uh, it is indeed sustainable in the long term.
1: And Sasha, just just finally from you, what does justice look like for these, these migrant workers who've been kept in terrible conditions, who've had their passports taken away, who've been injured on site and told to go back to work, and and those who, of course, have have died as well. What does justice look like for them?
5: Well, I suppose it's very hard to say what justice could look like for someone who um, paid some thousands of pounds to be able to work, Mm. um, found themselves working in 40-degree-plus terrible conditions, complaining about that. has passed away despite you know being in their 30s and healthy i I mean i struggle to see what you could really draw a line between that situation and justice Mm. however of course you know we have talked about um the importance now of compensation which again as i say fifa has not made the commitments that we would like um i think that now we are in a situation whereby, you know, my call to every football fan, my call to those who've got high profile positions like footballers and um, some of those ambassadors and celebrities is don't don't just make empty gestures and think that that's sufficient. Use the power, use the position, use the authority that you have. Let's not allow this tournament to be used as it was intended to do originally which was to be a cover over a whole range of positions of human rights. Yes, we may have different positions here on the extent to which the progress has been significant or otherwise. What we're certainly agreeing on is it's far from ideal. Hmm. Um, but what I do think is important now is that fans and others make sure that the real legacy of this tournament is one that shows that hypocrisy around human rights cannot be tolerated. Let's make that the real re- legacy of this it should have been something that was considered more at the time of the awarding of the tournament in terms of commitments to be made. But I think it's now a reality, um, but one that we need to make sure is not lost in the next few weeks. OK, thank you very much. Um, Sasha
1: Desmuk, CEO of Amnesty International. Thank you very much. And Max Tunyon, head of the International Labour Organisation Project Office for the state of Qatar. Thank you Thanks, very guys. much
0: thank you for
1: joining us. Really, really appreciate that. Um, of course, this is a conversation that is going to continue, obviously, over the next few weeks and the next couple of months with the tournament as well. And certainly, something that we are going to be going to be chatting about more as we go on. Um, and again, it goes, be-
0: this, this goes back to Joe, what we were saying. This, this is the topic. We've, we've given our silly facts earlier, but actually some of, of some of the stuff that Sasha and Max have said today is so impactive. That is the sort of thing that we want people to talk about in the pub and to raise that awareness of actually what has been going on. And it is OK to talk about it. Everyone kind of feels a bit nervous to mention it, but it's the reality of what's been going on.
1: Yeah, and this is it. I think I think we're this. This show is is predominantly going to be light hearted and silly, but it's like th- look, this is happening, and this is an interesting thing for you to talk about with your friends in the pub or when you're watching it at home or whatever. Because this is the context of this tournament, and I think what was interesting, what was being said there, is like as Sasha said, there's the opportunity for high profile people to do something. Now it's a real shame that that David Beckham used his position to go and go to Qatar and be paid and talk about his favourite spice market when he could have gone. Well, hang on nearly 7,000 people have died here building these stadiums, let's work out a way to at least try and do something for their families and make sure nothing like that happens again. <laughs> it's an opportunity But then we, to... don't,
0: we don't know, I guess, in David Beckham's defence at the moment, he may come out with something that might yeah. be very impactive to help people. But I can see why people expected this something to have been said sooner.
1: Well, I think what's interesting, actually, and that you and I were talking about earlier, was that we don't know how the broadcasters are going to cover it yet. Yeah. So I'm a bit because Gary Neville got quite a lot of stick on, have I got news for you about, um, <laughs> he got rinsed. Um, and I think you're going to get rinsed if you go on that show anyway. Yeah. Um, but about going to Qatar and that kind of thing, and I think he's doing his coverage for the BBC. If not, it's going to be ITB. I've got a 50-50 chance. I think he's in it for the BBC. <laughs> um, but I'd be interested to see what their coverage is like yeah. and whether they're going to pull their punches, whether they're going to pander to FIFA, whether they're going to say what they like. And I think until we've seen that, we can't judge it. I certainly think we can judge kind of um, other kind of people who maybe all the corporate sponsors and that kind of thing. I think that's different. And the people who are kind of helping FIFA do what Sasha said was sport washing. Um, there's also an interesting element that Max was kind of talking about as well. Like, look, maybe there's, this can't all happen overnight. Like you have to be realistic. It's a really, really interesting debate. Um,
0: yeah, and, and Do- changes have happened, as Max was saying. Things have changed. But from our perspective, not enough. And from the, the people that have died and their families, that means nothing.
1: Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, right, it's time for uh, for what's going to be a regular feature. Tell me something I don't know. Um, oh, you're a city fan,
3: aren't you, Alice? <laughs> My poor
0: guy. Literally when I'm like, hold on, stop your facts. Everybody is a city fan. What has that got to do with a poor guy coming on the show to chat to us with his amazing uh facts? And I just wanted everybody to know that he's a city fan.
1: There was also a big delay you and you went, Alex, Alex, stop. You're a city fan. I just wanted everyone to know that. He's like, brilliant, thanks <laughs> <laughs> um, right, but tell me something I didn't know. is all about exploring some of the most important aspects of football that rarely get discussed. Um, where we're going to speak to people involved in an area of football to try and understand what goes on behind the scenes. And this week, we're focusing on football agents. What are they? Why do they exist? And how do they help footballers? Well, Will Buckley is with us now, owner of WEB Sports Management, former player as well. Um, we'll play for Rochdale, Watford, Brighton, Sunderland. Um, Will, thank you very much for joining us, mate. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for the invite. So (laughs) let's talk about being a football agent. How difficult is that transition from you? And we've got this image, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, of the footballer. You live a very charmed life. And then suddenly it's the agent and you're in the office and you're kind of doing all the admin. And I remember talking to an agent once who said that he represented a player who um, called him up and went, I'm a bit worried, the grass is getting a bit long in my back garden. And he went all right he went what do i do about it and he went well get your fly mo out he's like, he's like well what do you mean can you hire can you hire someone so he hired someone to come around and cut the grass and then he called him and went oh, i don't like this bloke he's cutting the grass can you call him and tell him to go away, please? <laughs> is your life like that or is that
6: just kind of the, the parody that we see i think i've been lucky up to now i've not had any players that are that bad <laughs> but yeah it's it's that transition in it from me ringing an agent saying what's going on and now i'm receiving phone calls off players to asking me what's going on so yeah it's it's been quite an easy transition though because i'm still in the football world um it's something that i looked into and something that i wanted to kind of transition into anyway so yeah i mean there's a few different things that come up that are a bit like wow do i have to deal with this as well as as well (laughs) as things as well but yeah you, you get used to it and yeah i'm enjoying it um not having to keep us fit anymore, which is good. So (laughs) what's (laughs) that?
0: And what's it like though? You've gone from like playing and then you go to, like Joe said, sitting behind a desk, but your reaction to stuff has to be totally different. So, like, you have to be like really professional and and be really respectful. But as a player, sometimes you can you can go you can go past that line a little bit, can't you? But as a as a manager, you can't.
1: Well, Harry uh, Harry Hannah, sorry, you were to take chewing gum out of Jesse Lingard's mouth, didn't you?
0: Yeah, I did. We were about to film at Old Trafford, <laughs> and I was like, "Get that out of your mouth!" And he like took it out took it out his mouth and it looked at me as if like, "What am I going to do with it?" I'm like. What In the bin? There was another player who had parked his Porsche 911 Turbo outside (coughs) and left his car keys in it, in the engine, and um, and his mobile phone. And he came upstairs and he was like, oh, I left... I've left my, uh, you know, we're at the children's hospital giving Christmas presents out to kids. And he was like, I've left my, um, my phone and that in my car, looked at me as if I was going to do, like, do something about it. I'm like, mate, I'm about to interview you. And then he'd parked in the loading bay where the ambulances <laughs> are supposed to park at the outside of the hospital. I'm like, who who are these people? Like, what?
6: Well, I've, like I said, because I've been in the dressing room with these kind of players, yeah, am surprised, to be honest with you. <laughs> I think it's a good job you have Play liaisons at clubs because they're the ones that usually follow follow the lads about, you know doing hospital visits or something. Mm, yeah. Like that. Receiving mail through the post. Oh, I've got a council tax bill. What do I do with it? They're the ones you hopefully that can deal with it and not not the agent. But um, yeah, you you see these players and you think how do they get on through life? But now I've got to be there to to make. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what does a typical day look like for you then? Um, I mean, it can vary. To be fair. It kind of all depends on if my players have got a game, if they're just training. If they... A lot of evenings now, because obviously there's there's going to be games tonight that I'll probably try and get to. Obviously, weekends are different now. It's not playing. It's, it's going to kind of figure out which one I'm going to go and see. Mm. Um, yeah, day-to-day, it can be anything. I might get a phone call off one of my players who's had a falling out with the manager, and it's just kind of relaying back what I, how I dealt with certain situations and, you know, trying to give them the best advice. I think that's more more my role now. Uh, and, and
0: Will, how do you do that? How do you deal with um, the, the player? And then how do you deal with the manager? Like, do, would you make an immediate phone call to a manager? If you're like, do you know what? My player's not happy about this. How is the channels you go through? Or how I just have visions of you being like, right, Johnny's not happy. Right, that's it. I'm ringing Peter and I'm going to have a go at him. Is that how it works or not? <laughs>
6: I think it's more just dealing with the player. I think managers have enough on the on the plate to, to be expecting phone calls from agents, unless it's something really serious where it's it's right. going to, you know, a player having to move on, which probably we've seen in the news, aren't today with Cristiano Ronaldo? But mm-hmm. usually it's just a little falling out at training or they've been dropped. So it'll be kind of dealing with the player more than anything to best advise him how to move forward and 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 deal with that and try and get back in the team or whatever it might be. Would you have, I mean. I imagine like say I don't know
1: you're looking after a player who's at Spurs, and they're like I'm really. Do you know what I'm fuming with the boss? Can you ring up Antonio Conte <laughs> and have a go? Be like, oh, are you? Are
6: you sure you weren't in the wrong, mate? <laughs> sure, yeah. but
1: like yeah. it must or, be or scary.
6: I get involved. Yeah, I think it's more. <laughs> some managers are open to talking to agents. Mm. Some, uh, you know, I've been a player and I've heard managers go. Don't be get don't be having your agent ringing me and all this. So it's some managers know it's part of the game. Some are quite old school and like I'm not dealing with an agent kind of thing. So I think people and managers know that agents are a massive part of the game. The ones that can deal with agents and players and talk to them respectfully and get the best out of the situation are the ones that all It'll, it'll benefit the managers in the long run because they'll keep hold of the better players if there is a bit of a falling out or something like that. So it's it's quite important role to kind of, of just give advice. Really, that's that's my main 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 thing for my players. Really. And Will, could I just ask you, just, just finally, so do you kind of, people think about footballers and kind of do think of
1: footballers living quite a charmed existence, but it's not, and it's still a job, and like you say, you still mm. sometimes get mistreated, and I've heard horrible stories about the way managers and stuff have spoken to young players and things. Mm. Do you kind of feel like, I suppose, do you kind of feel a responsibility to help, and do you feel like it's a big
6: part of your job, and that you get to, to help these lads be treated a little bit better? Yeah, I think I've seen that already in my short time of doing this. Um, players kind of feeling kind of let down by the manager or sometimes even the club with how things are handled. Um, and I think from the outside in sports, probably don't see that kind of, you know, the the bad side of football, really. You know, what happens to a player when the manager falls out with him? They just think, mm-hmm. all right, playing, but they might be forced to train with the under-18s, the under-23s, come in at stupid times and staying in till late when nobody else is in, doing gym sessions at, at, you know, silly times. So I think it's dealing with the mental side of it as well. You know, I've had yeah. a player that's been really down um, about a situation and really affecting his life, really. So it's it's how you kind of deal with that and help them through that to come out the other side and realise that they've still got a career and we might not get that club, we might have to move on and, and rebuild yeah. you, yourself as a player.
0: Well, really quickly, Will, can I ask you a question? If you were Ronaldo's agent, would you have recommended him to go on a talk, uh, go and talk to Piers Morgan about the club? What's your thoughts on it really quickly?
6: Um, I definitely want to recommend it to be Piers Morgan anyway. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's a bit of a weird one because it's, he wanted to leave in the summer by the looks of it and United made him stay. Now it's the same situation. So whether he has spoke to his agent and they both kind of come up with a plan of we need to ruffle from fe- some feathers here and yeah. really upset United to so then go, right, we really need to get rid of Ronaldo now. It's just it's just a weird situation that like it's Ronaldo. It? You wouldn't expect yeah. that kind of player, but it probably happen- it does happen quite a lot throughout other clubs. You probably just don't hear about it.
0: Yeah, as- yeah probably, yeah.
6: Um, nice one, Will. Thank
1: you very much for talking to us and Thanks, educating Will. us more about the world of being a football agent. Will Buckley, there, owner of WEB Sports Management and former player himself, um, really interesting, Hannah. Sounds like Will kind of gets to, to yes, help uh, these lads. Kind of, uh, yeah. I suppose, yeah, because it's it's not a world that we see a lot, and we talk, we kind of think about your Ronaldo's and your Harry Canes and your Mbappe's and your Neymars, mm. but that's a tiny percent of these footballers, and a lot of these guys are seventeen, eighteen years old, not knowing what to do, away from their families, and it's kind of. He's doing something, um, I suppose, yeah, quite quite noble and that really helps them. Um, right, what a roller coaster on our first oh show. Oh my god,
0: like we've been like this. All the way through. Loved I'm a, it.
1: I'm an emotional wreck.
0: <laughs> need to lie down.
1: Um, right. We are going to be back once the tournament has started. There's going to be lots of episodes throughout the tournament, keeping you up to date on what's happening, having those big conversations as well, and also talking a load of silly nonsense. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about LGBT rights in Qatar with former international footballer and former England manager, Hope Powell. And it was, there's going to be a lot of silly nonsense too. Hopefully, Hannah will interrupt another guest to tell them which football team they support. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Whoops. Uh, right. Thank you very much, Anna. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> and we'll see you next time.
0: Bye.